0: Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host, Paul, and this is episode 188. Our first story this week comes from the historyextra.com The making of the Bayeux Tapestry, who made it, how long did it take, and how has it survived? The Bayeux Tapestry tells one of the most famous stories in British history, that of the Norman conquest of England in 1066, particularly the Battle of Hastings, which took place on the 14th of October 1066. But who made the tapestry, and how long did it take? What materials were used and how was it stitched? And how has the tapestry survived for nearly 1,000 years? Here, Dr Alexandra Lester Markin explains the making of the Bayeux Tapestry. Number one. Who made the Bayeux Tapestry? How many people were involved in its making? We have no sources to tell us who made the tapestry, However, most scholars agree that it was made in Norman England, probably by Anglo-Saxon embroiderers. At present, we do not know how many people were involved in creating the tapestry. We can say it would have been embroidered by women because all the surviving evidence demonstrates that only women in early medieval England embroidered. Men could have created the design, however, There is a famous example where Ethelwyn, a 10th century noblewoman known for her embroidery work, wrote to St Dunstan, circa 924 to 988, asking him to design an embroidery pattern for a priest's stole that she and her girls could embroider in gold. Also, monks were well versed in drawing and transferring images onto manuscripts for illumination So it is not unlikely that men were involved in this part of the process. Women in Anglo-Saxon England were famed for their embroidery skills. Documentary sources tell us that embroidery was considered a commendable occupation for women in elite circles. While the Doomsday Book and the 12th century chronicle Liber Eliensis both highlight women who embroidered as a profession... Written sources for embroidery production in Normandy point to it being a worthy occupation for high ranking Norman women. Previously nuns or elite women were thought to have made the Bayeux tapestry. However, research I have undertaken studying the embroidery's technical attributes as seen on the reverse of the hanging shows the embroidery was stitched to a set standard, indicating a certain level of training. Meanwhile, certain motifs were worked to set formulas. For example, the castles can be divided into three groups. Outlines stitched first, then fillings, blocks of colour stitched from left to right and top to bottom, or simply different colours stitched from left to right. This all points to the possibility of three workers, or groups of workers, completing all the castles featured in the tapestry. This combined with the fact that each of the eight panels of ground fabric was embroidered before they were joined together and it means that they could have been worked simultaneously and leads to the conclusion that a sophisticated level of overall organisation was required. It can therefore be hypothesised that a manager was in charge of the production process. This person would have needed knowledge of embroidery working practices So it is likely that it would have been a professional embroider who was familiar with training and organising others and had experience working on large commissions. This level of organisation would need to have taken place in a professional workshop-like setting. Anglo-Saxon charters give examples of possible workshops. For instance, one dating to the 9th century records Bishop Denewolf of Worcester giving an embroiderer named Ian Swither an estate as payment for looking after and making textiles for the church. This estate most likely housed some form of workshop, much as other central estates are known to have done for textile production. My research too has highlighted archaeological evidence for possible embroidery workrooms. Such places would need to have been clean so that dirt could not contaminate the embroidery and they would also have needed access to good light. Larger and more elaborate pieces of the tapestry would have been attached to a slate frame. A large rectangular frame made of four pieces of wood that slot together. So generous space would have been required. Space would have also been needed to store materials, even if the materials were not being bought in bulk, and for workers to move around and work comfortably. It may be that in good weather, embroidery was undertaken outside under a canopy, much like the illustrations of women weaving depicted in the Utrecht Psalter. Number two. Who commissioned the making of the Bayeux Tapestry? There is no direct evidence for who commissioned the tapestry. A number of candidates have been postulated, including Queen Edith, wife of Edward the Confessor, William the Conqueror, or the monks of St Augustine's Abbey in Canterbury. However, most researchers support the suggestion that Bishop Odo, William the Conqueror's half-brother, is the most likely person. However, Elizabeth Carson-Paston, Stephen White and Kate Gilbert explored this theory in 2014 and conclude there is no real evidence to support it. Number three, who was the intended audience? To answer this question changes when we consider where the tapestry was meant to be displayed. If we take recent arguments put forward by Gail Owen Crocker and Chris Hennigy, the tapestry would have been hung in a room in a castle keep, which Hennigy suggests is Dover Castle. In this case, the audience would have consisted of Norman nobles and their families, guests and other dignitaries, and servants, slaves, who would have most likely been Anglo-Saxon. Therefore, a cross-section of people would have viewed the Bayeux tapestry. Number 4. When and where was the Bayeux tapestry made? And how did it end up in France? There is no concrete evidence for when the tapestry was made, nor how it ended up in France. Currently, the agreed date for its creation is sometime before the end of the 11th century. Scholars agree that the first positive record of the tapestry in France is the Bayeux Cathedral Inventory in 1476. At present, we do not know what happened to it between those dates. Professor George Beach has argued that the tapestry could have been made in France, but most scholars believe it was made in Anglo-Saxon England, with the most likely centre being in or around Canterbury. This is because the artistic style of the tapestry's design is a type known to have developed in Canterbury during the 11th century, but its precise name is unknown. Number five. How long would it have taken to make the bio-tapestry? It is difficult to say how long it took to make, and there has been no specific research on this. The answer would depend on how many women were working on the embroidery simultaneously, the size of the building or buildings in which it was being made, access to light and access to materials... Any estimation of the time taken to make the tapestry would need to take into account the time taken to manufacture the required materials, plus the time involved in the production of the design itself, plus other logistics. From an embroiderer's perspective, the stitches employed are not particularly time-consuming to work. Number 6. What is the Bayeux Tapestry made of? What renovations and restoration work have been carried out on the tapestry? The base textile or ground fabric of the Bayer tapestry is linen. It was stitched with wool threads dyed with natural dyes. A small number of linen threads were also sporadically used. Over the intervening centuries, a number of linen textile patches were added to the back of the tapestry to cover tears and holes. During the 19th century, areas of the missing embroidery were re-stitched with wool thread dyed with chemicals. On the front of the hanging, these appear more garish than the original threads. On the reverse, the level of stitchwork is not as neat or precise as the original. Running along the top of the tapestry is a strip of linen fabric. The French conservators who studied the tapestry during its 1982 conservation thought the strip was old, but they were not sure how old. An early backing was lost during restoration work on the tapestry in the 19th century, therefore a new lining was attached. Number 7. The Bayeux Tapestry is not really a tapestry at all, but rather an embroidery. Can you explain further? Correct, the bio tapestry is actually embroidery. A tapestry is a woven textile where the design is woven into the fabric as the textile is being created on the loom. Embroidery on the other hand is stitched onto a piece of textile that is already woven. The design is often, but not always, drawn onto the ground fabric for the embroiderer to follow. When you view a tapestry, the design and the ground fabric appear meshed together because they were created at the same time. Whereas when you look at embroidery, the stitching often stands proud of the ground fabric. This is particularly true of the bio-tapestry. Number 8. What embroidery techniques were used? What can you tell us about the specific bio-stitch used to make the bio-tapestry? Four embroidery stitches, stem-stitch, split-stitch, chain-stitch and laid-work were used on the Bayer tapestry. Stem-stitch was predominantly used as an outline stitch, that is for the lettering and as open filling stitch to emulate chain-mail. It was occasionally worked more densely to fill in small areas such as a horse's cheek. Split-stitch and chain-stitch were used rarely. Both were worked as independent lines for objects, such as the handle of a spear, ship's rigging or to add depth to some letters. All three of these stitches are worked in single and double rows. Laid work, sometimes called bias stitch, is the most predominant stitch. It is used for nearly all fillings throughout the hanging. Variations of this stitch were also popular in 17th century crewel work embroidery a type of surface embroidery using wool. All of the stitches used in the bio-tapestry were popular during the medieval period, with stem stitch, split stitch and occasionally chain stitch being worked in wool and silk threads. Laid work does not survive as well, but there are examples from fragmented hangings discovered in Viking contexts all worked in wool threads. Number 9. Which section or sections of the bio-tapestry do you think would have been the most difficult to make? Hmm, this is a difficult question to answer. With regard to the embroidering process, it would depend on how the design was divided for each worker or group of workers. I think that to begin with, the most difficult sections would have been where complex embroidery covers the seams. For example, the horses depicted in the final battle sequence at seams 5, 7 and 8. There are a total of 8 seams joining 9 pieces of ground fabric together which make up the surviving length of the tapestry. Here, the technical evidence shows that workers finished the embroidery on one panel some way short of a seam, while starting it slightly further in at the beginning of the next panel. It is probable that each panel was not worked consecutively or even by the same embroiderer, so each worker would have had to establish how much space to leave in order for the scene to be constructed and to make sure the finished design looked right. Once the panels were ready to be sewn together, the design would have been matched up, but a space would have been left. Once the seam was completed, an embroiderer would have finished stitching the design over the completed join. This would have required forethought, vision and creativity, and would likely have been rather an intense mental process. Eventually, of course, it would have become second nature to the embroiderers. Number 10. Is it true that the final scenes of the bio-tapestry are missing? If so, What happened, and what might they have depicted? Yes, the final scene or scenes are missing. We know that from 1476 onwards, at no time was the tapestry displayed indefinitely. At other times it was stored in a wooden chest, and much later on a large roller. When textiles are stored and displayed only occasionally, their edges tend to get handled more often because people need to hold and hoist them as the textile is being taken out of storage, moved into position, hung, tweaked and then later taken down and put back into storage. This leads to more degradation at the edges. It is also possible that when the tapestry was stored in the wooden chest mentioned here, the final scenes were laid on top, making them more vulnerable to damage. In fact, we are lucky that any of the Bayeux tapestry survived at all. Most scholars believe the final scene or scenes of the tapestry would have depicted the lead-up to the coronation of Duke William as King of England, as a fitting end to the story being told. It would also make sense from a design perspective. Gail Owen Crocker has shown that if the tapestry was hung in a square room of a secular building, possibly a castle keeper suggested before, The layout design is geometric, with particular motifs mirroring each other across the display space. As such, the coronation of William would mirror the first scene in which King Edward is seated on his throne. And number 11. How has the Bayeux Tapestry survived over the centuries? The Bayeux Tapestry has survived due to a fortunate set of circumstances. Although we do not know how or when the hanging arrived at Bayer Cathedral, the fact that it did is an important part of its survival story. Stored in a religious setting or given special status, the tapestry was likely displayed only occasionally. As such it was handled less frequently than other hangings that would have adorned secular buildings, meaning there was less opportunity for damage, loss or destruction. The Bayeux Tapestry has also, through history, become an icon for different political personalities, such as Napoleon and the Nazis, who studied it and kept it safe in order to highlight their political messages. Of French military might over the English, of German pan-nationalism, respectively. Finally, the Bayeux Tapestry's importance as a cultural artefact has ensured that it has been kept safe and well looked after particularly in the modern era by a trained and knowledgeable multidisciplinary team at Bayer Museums Department. Number 12. If the Bayer tapestry comes to Britain, as has been suggested by the French president, Emmanuel Macron, how would it be transported? Would it survive the journey and how might it be displayed? This is a question best answered by the conservators and curators at Bayer. They know and understand the needs of the tapestry better than anyone else and I believe the final decision as to whether the hanging can and should be moved should lie with them. They are able to access all aspects of the tapestry's needs from its vulnerability as an almost 1,000-year-old textile, the logistics involved in its transportation, what sort of container would be required and if they deemed it safe to travel, How should it be displayed in Britain? None of these are easy questions to answer. At present the bio-tapestry is displayed in a strictly controlled environment, bulletproof glass, climate control inside the casing and strict protocols about who can access the tapestry. These conditions would have to be replicated during transit and also in its new display space in Britain. The tapestry's fragility means that how it is handled, packed and later displayed, needs careful consideration in order to prevent further deterioration. And lastly, number 13. What does the future hold for the Bayeux tapestry? I believe the future of the Bayeux tapestry is exciting. There are plans for a purpose-built museum in Bayeux to house and look after the tapestry and to develop its material context which is such an important aspect of the history. Personally, I hope there will be opportunities for further non-intrusive technical study of the embroidery during its conservation. For me, this would offer an opportunity to study by eye and microscope the way the stitching was constructed and how threads were utilised, and to look for working as seen on the reverse of the tapestry. I would also like to analyse the embroidery in tandem from the obverse and reverse, to see if individual workers can be identified. I believe this will tell us more about how the tapestry was created and also the working methods and organisation employed in the production of embroidery during the early medieval period more generally. And if you visit the show notes at patreon.com forward slash Rex. And click on the link to episode 188 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. And then on the link to this article, there are numerous links contained within this story to help you understand the situation more. And remember, even though it's at patreon.com, anyone can access the show notes for this podcast. patreon.com forward slash Rex. and from the Odditycentral.com, A Thai restaurant has been serving the same batch of soup for 45 years. Watanapanish is one of the most popular restaurants in Bangkok's Ekamai neighbourhood, with hundreds of hungry patrons coming in to feast on its selection of delicious soups and stews every day. But the secret of the flavoursome dishes served at this Thai eatery may put a lot of Westerners off. One of the most popular dishes at Watana Panish is the rich beef noodle soup, made with stewed and raw beef, tripe, meatballs, internal organs and spices. But the most important ingredient is the broth, which, believe it or not, has been simmering for 45 years. It sounds strange, but it's true. Instead of throwing away the leftover broth every night, the owners of Watanapanish carefully strain it and store it to be used as the base for next day's batch of soup. They've been doing this every day for over four decades and credit it as the main secret to their delicious dishes. Watanapanish relies on an old cooking method known as perpetual stew or hunter's stew which basically involves leaving the stew to simmer constantly while adding new ingredients to it. This ensures that the broth absorbs as much flavour as possible from the ingredients, making the dishes it is used for absolutely delicious. The principle is simple, the longer the broth simmers, the better it becomes. But this Thai eatery has taken it to the extreme. According to BK Magazine, the cooks at Watanapanish cool the leftover broth every night and store it in the fridge to prevent spoiling. It is used as the base for the next day's stew. The cook adds about 25 kilograms of beef to the stew every day, the flavour of which sips into the decades-old broth, constantly enhancing its flavour. Natapong Kawinatawong is the third generation of his family to be running Watana Panish and hopes that his three children will become the fourth. Whatever happens, one thing is for sure, they'll be using the same broth, or at least a bit of it, as the day the restaurant opened in Ekamai 45 years ago. And in case you're wondering about that brown hardened shell around the large metal stew pot, it's testimony to how long the broth has been used for. The owners of Wotana Panish have made it tradition not to clean the 45 years worth of broth spillover. It's not the most hygienic piece of history, but it's history nonetheless. And just in case you're interested in what this stew might look like, there are two videos and a photograph to enhance your viewing Pleasure. Worth a look. And also from the Odditycentral.com, a Polish village where boys are rarely born offers to reward the first couple to have a son. Mr. Zrinka, a small village in southern Poland near the border with the Czech Republic, is offering to reward the first local family to give birth to a son. None have been born there in the last nine years, and the youngest one that still lives in the village is 12 years old. No one knows why, but couples in the village rarely have boys. Most of the 300 or so inhabitants are women, and locals say it's been this way for as long as they can remember. Mayor Rajmin Frisko recently told Polish reporters that after checking historical records and reviewing registered birth certificates, he can confirm that rare male births are not just a recent anomaly. He has also pledged to reward the first couple to give birth to a boy. We looked into it further reviewing birth certificates, Frischko said. I think that what the older residents say is confirmed. Girls are constantly born and the birth of boys is rare. Explaining this puzzle will not be easy. Tomas Golaz, the head of the volunteer fire brigade, who was apparently also staffed mainly by women, said that he himself would like to have a son, but considering the history of the village, the chances of success are very small. It has been going on for several decades, Golaz, the father of two daughters, said. I came to the village, took a local girl for my wife, and we had two daughters, I would like to have a son, but it's probably unrealistic. My neighbour also tried and has two daughters. I don't think women give birth to boys here. News of the unusual sex rate discrepancy in the village went viral in Poland this week and attracted the attention of Professor Rafal Ploski, head of the Department of Medical Genetics at the Medical University of Warsaw. He said it's necessary to go deeper into historical records and check birth statistics in order to find an answer to this mystery. Then you should check if the girls' parents are not related to each other. Even a very distant extant, Plosky added. The next step, conduct an accurate interview with parents and children, check the environmental conditions. Only then can some trail appear. Until an answer is found, Mayor Frischko, who also has two daughters, said that he will reward the parents of the first boy to be born in the village. He would not reveal what the reward will be, but he ensured interested couples that the gift will be attractive. And from the HistoricMysteries.com website, Italy's quest for the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. The Ark of the Covenant, the holiest of artefacts known to house the Ten Commandments, supposedly existed 3,000 years ago. Tradition indicates that Nebuchadnezzar stole it and destroyed it when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and plundered King Solomon's temple in 586 BCE. However, some experts believe that the real Ark survived. The most credible theory states that the Ark found its way to Ethiopia during King Solomon's rule around the 10th century BCE, and may still be there today. Historians suggest that before World War II, under Mussolini's command, Italy made significant efforts to find it. The Ark was a chest measuring 4 feet 2 inches long, 2 feet 6 inches wide and 2 feet 6 inches high. It was made of acacia, overlaid with gold inside and outside and was fashioned by two of the most skilled Israelite craftsmen. A golden crown and two cherubs facing each other decorated the top. It was covered by a pure gold cloth called couplet. Background legend about the Ark of the Covenant. It all begins with Menelik I, son of King Solomon and Makeda, the Queen of Sheba, around 950 BCE. According to the legend, when Makeda visited the king, she became pregnant by him and gave birth in Abyssinia or modern-day Ethiopia. After Menelik reached adulthood, he travelled to visit his father in Jerusalem. When the time came for Menelik's return to Ethiopia, King Solomon wanted a copy of the Ark to go with Menelik for prayer. After all, Ethiopia was so far away from the temple in Jerusalem. However, Prince Menelik I worried about the sanctity of the real Ark since Solomon had placed idols in the temple along with the Ark at the request of his pagan wives. Menelik and his followers formulated a plan in which they would swap the Arks. Menelik would then assume care for the real one. First the men ensured that the priests were drunk from wine. Then Menelik made the trade, and a group of Jews accompanied Menelik back to Abyssinia with the Ark. Other versions of the story say that the king entrusted Menelik with the real Ark for safekeeping. Nevertheless, the real Ark of the Covenant arrived with Menelik I in Ethiopia. It stayed at the Lake Tana Cherkos Monastery for the next 800 years. Subsequently, it found its resting place at the Church of St Mary of Zion in Axum, Ethiopia. From that point to the present, just one monk, known as the Guardian of the Ark, staffs the church. He remains in this sacred position until his death, and he informs all curious visitors that he and the rest of Axum would give their lives to protect the Ark. Only the Guardian is allowed to view the Ark Regardless of anyone's position or wealth, Italy invades Ethiopia and begins a quest. Italian polity of the 20th century considered Ethiopia to be in its sphere of influence. Additionally, it was one of the few African countries which still preserved its independence, free from European domination. Ethiopia had also skirmished with Italy in the past and won the engagement decisively. This occurred in 1896 when 14,500 Italian soldiers suffered a huge defeat at the hands of 80,000 Ethiopians in Adwa. Fueled by the need for revenge and expansion by colonialization, Mussolini sent his newly mechanised legions under the command of Field Marshal Rodolfo Graziani across the Abyssinian border from Italian Somaliland and Eritrea on October the 3rd, 1935. What was the Vatican's position on Ethiopia? Abyssinia was quickly overrun. The League of Nations issued their protests. It seemed that only the Vatican kept quiet. Some speculate that the Vatican blessed the Italian invasion of Abyssinia for its own reasons. The Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church called itself the original Christian faith, as did the Roman Catholics at the Vatican. Certainly, it didn't sit well when the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church refused to accept the Pope as the supreme leader of the Christian faith. Pope Pius XI was careful to not personally endorse the Italian invasion on Abyssinia. The potential backlash from Catholics worldwide would be enough reason to not support the war publicly. But many people believe that Mussolini obtained Vatican support for the invasion. This was in part because it would allow the Vatican to submit the Ethiopian Orthodox Church to its will. Although Pope Pius XI was fairly quiet during Italy's occupation of Abyssinia, other members of the Vatican were much more vocal. Archbishop of Tirano was quoted as saying, The war against Ethiopia should be considered as a holy war, a crusade, as Italian victory would open Ethiopia, a country of infidels and schismatics to the expansion of the Catholic faith. The Search for the Ark Ethiopia, with its long, rich history of Judaism and Christianity, claimed to possess the one artefact most desired by all the major religions, the Ark of the Covenant. The Vatican was certainly aware of this claim. Some speculate that the Vatican, as the representative of Christianity, wanted the world's holiest artefact in its own possession. This too put them at odds with the Ethiopian Orthodox Church did Fascist Italy, with the blessing of the Vatican, attempt to locate and remove the Ark from St. Mary's Church in Axum, Ethiopia? There are no official records that confirm this. However, Italian forces did seek Ethiopian national treasures, and Italian soldiers did occupy Axum. In fact, the Italians removed the Great Stele, or Obelisk of Axum, and they reassembled it in the heart of Rome. This feat alone shows that money was not an option. The transportation of this large object was an engineering feat unheard of at the time. Security Measures to Guard the Ark The Ethiopian Orthodox Church has a long history of moving the Ark for safekeeping. After residing in the Lake Tana Islands for more than 800 years, it was eventually moved to Axum in 333. On multiple occasions when the Ark was under threat, guardians once again returned it to Lake Tana. In some instances it was relocated to other areas such as in Gondo, the caves of the Semian Mountain, in Shiwa, the Ziwe Islands and elsewhere. As expected, Ethiopian religious officials claim the Ark was moved from Aksum during the Italian occupation. To make matters even more confusing, the Amhara tradition also states that an exact copy of the Ark is in St Mary of Zion Church, and the original Ark of the Covenant is in the Ambiza or Lion Mine. On the other hand, the St Mary of Zion Church claims that they have the original. Regardless of the confusion, the Italian forces in Ethiopia during 1935-41 left no stone overturned. Some estimates state that over 1 million Ethiopians lost their lives. Over 300 monks, nuns and clergy were murdered. 2,000 churches were destroyed, along with 525,000 homes and 14 million livestock. Were the churches burned down to subdue the Orthodox Church, or to search for the Ark? Official records do not address this. Italian representatives join the hunt. The Ark is the only one of many biblical ties Ethiopia has with Israel. It is interesting to note that many prominent Italian officials travel to areas in Abyssinia either known for their historic relationship to the Ark's location or because of their religious significance. Documentation indicates that Alessandro Pavolini, a lieutenant in 1936 and minister of popular culture in 1939, traveled to Lake Tana. Lake Tana, as mentioned earlier, was the original location of the Ark in Ethiopia. The lake is also supposedly where the Ark went for safekeeping in times of turmoil. In 1936, just after the Italian invasion of Abyssinia, Pavolini travelled to Lake Tana via some water landing craft long before Italian forces could arrive and secure the area. One can only speculate why he took the risk of getting there as soon as possible before Italian forces could secure the area. Did he suspect that the Ark had gone there? Giordano Bruno Gheri documented the original letters about Pavolini's trip to Lake Tana in Storia Illustrata. Galeazzo Ciano, the Italian foreign minister, travelled that same year to Gondar. After Aksum, Gondar is the second most holy city in Ethiopia. Gondar is also famous for its monks, who profess the legend of Lilith and Cain of Hebrew-Jewish texts. For those who may be unfamiliar with this story, Lilith was the first woman that God created for Adam. Cain was the firstborn of Adam and Eve. God condemned Cain to the land of the Wandering, during which he met Lilith east of Eden by the Red Sea. Italy also seeks King Solomon's mine. The intentions of Pavolini and Ciano are unclear. Officially their travel was all business, while others say it was personal. But another surprising motive that recently came to light was their quest for another biblical subject, King Solomon's Mines. Some archaeologists and biblical scholars have long thought that the location of King Solomon's Mines may be in East Africa. In the book Il Mistero di San Pietro in Ciel released in summer 2010, Enrico Senucci points out that the search for King Solomon's mines was a top priority for the invading Italians. But as far as the Ark of the Covenant goes, the bubble burst in Axum, at least for the Italians. There was not just one Ark, but over 100 of them scattered throughout the country. To the Italians, this was a typical Ethiopian trick. They were hiding the real Ark, if it truly existed, with the placement of copies in almost every church. However, to the Ethiopians, this was another victory in keeping their most holy possession in Ethiopian hands. No one knows for sure if the Ark of the Covenant really existed or not. It is one of history's great biblical legends and a mystery with little concrete evidence one can go by. Although The Raiders of the Lost Ark was a fictional movie, albeit entertaining, it appears that the Italian exploits in Abyssinia are probably a historical event and just one more story about the powers of the world attempting to find and capture lost treasure. from the mentalfloss.com, a story by Cora.com. Why are so many ancient statues missing their noses? Spencer Alexander McDaniel. This is a question a lot of people have asked. If you have ever visited a museum, you have probably seen ancient sculptures such as the one below a Greek marble head of the poet Sappho, currently held in the Glyptothek in Munich, with a missing nose. A smashed or missing nose is a common feature on ancient sculptures from all cultures and all time periods in ancient history. It is by no means a feature that is confined to the sculptures of any particular culture or era. Even the nose of the Great Sphinx, which stands on the Giza Plateau in Egypt, alongside the Great Pyramids, is famously missing. If you have seen one of these sculptures, you have probably wondered, what happened to the nose? Some people seem to have a false impression that the noses on the majority of these sculptures were deliberately removed by someone. It is true that a few ancient sculptures were indeed deliberately defaced by people at various times for various reasons. For instance, there is a 1st century AD Greek marble head of the goddess Aphrodite that was discovered in the Athenian Agora. You can tell that this particular marble head was at some point deliberately vandalised by Christians because they chiselled a cross into the goddess's forehead. This marble head, however, is an exceptional case that is not representative of the majority of ancient sculptures that are missing noses. For the vast majority of ancient sculptures that are missing noses, the reason for the missing nose has nothing to do with people at all. Instead, the reason for the missing nose simply has to do with the natural wear that the sculpture has suffered over time. The fact is, ancient sculptures are thousands of years old and they all have undergone considerable natural wear over time. The statues we see in museums today are almost always beaten, battered and damaged by time and exposure to the elements. Parts of sculptures that stick out, such as noses, arms, heads and other appendages, are almost always the first parts to break off. Other parts that are more securely attached Such as legs and torsos are generally more likely to remain intact. You are probably familiar with the ancient Greek statue shown below. It was found on the Greek island of Milos and was originally sculpted by Alexandros of Antioch in around the late 2nd century BC. It is known as the Aphrodite of Milos or more commonly Venus de Milo. It famously has no arms. Once upon a time, the Aphrodite of Milos did, in fact, have arms, but they broke off at some point, as arms, noses and legs often tend to do. The exact same thing has happened to many other sculptures' noses. Because the noses stick out, they tend to break off easily. Greek sculptures, as we see them today, are merely worn-out husks of their former glory. They were originally brightly painted, but most of the original pigments faded or flaked off long ago, leaving the bare white marble exposed. Some exceptionally well-preserved sculptures do still retain traces of their original coloration though. Even for the sculptures that do not retain visible color to the naked eye, archaeologists can detect traces of pigment under an ultraviolet light using special techniques. There are also dozens of references to painted sculptures in ancient Greek literature, such as in Euripides' Helen, in which Helen laments, in translation of course, My life and fortunes are a monstrosity, partly because of Hera, partly because of my beauty. If only I could shed my beauty and assume an uglier aspect, the way you can wipe colour off a statue. And if you'd like to see some of these statues and one of them in colour, visit the show notes at patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex and click on the link to this article in episode 188. And from the LiveAbout.com website, an article by Stephen Wagner. Is there evidence of reincarnation? Have you lived before? The idea that our souls live through many lifetimes over the centuries is known as reincarnation. It has been part of virtually every culture since ancient times. The Egyptians, Greeks, Roman, Aztecs all believed in the transmigration of souls from one body to another after death. Reincarnation is also a fundamental concept in Hinduism. Although it is not part of official Christian doctrine, many Christians believe in reincarnation or at least accept its possibility. Jesus, it is believed, was resurrected three days after his crucifixion. The idea that we can live again after death as another person, as a member of the opposite sex or in a completely different station in life, is intriguing and for many people, highly appealing. But is reincarnation just an idea? Or is there real evidence to support it? Many researchers have tackled this question, and their results are surprising. Past Life Regression Hypnosis The practice of reaching past lives through hypnosis is controversial, primarily because hypnosis is not a reliable tool. It can certainly help researchers access the unconscious mind, but the information found there should not be taken as truth. For example, it has been shown that hypnosis can create false memories. That doesn't mean, however, that regression hypnosis should be dismissed out of hand. If information from a past life can be verified through research, then the case for reincarnation becomes more compelling. The most famous case of past life regression through hypnosis is that of Ruth Simmons. In 1952, her therapist Maury Bernstein encouraged her to travel in her mind back to a time before her birth. Suddenly, Ruth began to speak with an Irish accent and claimed that her name was Bridie Murphy, who lived in 19th century Belfast, Ireland. Ruth recalled many details of her life as Bridie, but attempts to find out if Miss Murphy actually existed were unfortunately unsuccessful. There was, however, some indirect evidence for the truth of her story. Under hypnosis, Bridie mentioned the name of two grocers in Belfast from whom she had bought food, Mr. Farr and John Carrigan. A Belfast librarian found a city directory for 1865-1866 to 1866 that listed both men as grocers. Simmons' story was told both in a book by Bernstein and in a 1956 movie, The Search for Bridie Murphy. Unusual Illnesses and Physical Ailments Do you have a lifelong illness or physical pain that you cannot account for? It may be the result of some past life trauma, some researchers suggest. In Have We Really Lived Before, Dr. Michael C. Pollock describes his lower back pain, which grew steadily worse over the years and limited his activities. He believes he found a possible explanation for the pain during a series of past life therapy sessions. I discovered that I had lived at least three prior lifetimes, in which I had been killed by being knifed or speared in the lower back. After processing and healing the past life experiences, my back began to heal. Research conducted by Nicola Dexter, a past life therapist, has discovered correlations between some of her patients' illnesses and their past lives. She found, for example, a case of bulimia caused by swallowing salt water in a previous life, a persistent pain in the shoulder and arm caused by participating in a past life, in a dangerous game of of tug-of-war, and a fear of razors and shaving that was the result of the sufferer having his hand cut off in a previous life phobias and nightmares. Where does some seemingly irrational fear come from? Fear of heights, fear of water, fear of flying. Many of us have normal reservations about such things, but some people have fears so great that they become debilitating. And some fears are completely baffling. A fear of carpets, for example. Where do such fears come from? The answer, of course, can be psychologically complex, but researchers think that in some cases there might be a connection to experiences from previous lifetimes. In Healing Past Lives Through Dreams, author J.D. writes about his claustrophobia, which includes a tendency to panic whenever his arms or legs are confined or restricted. He believes that a dream of a past life uncovered a trauma that explains his fear. One night in the dream state, I found myself hovering over a disturbing scene, he writes. It was a town in 15th century Spain, and a frightened man was being hogtied by a small, jeering crowd. He had expressed beliefs contrary to the church. Some local ruffians with the blessing of the church officials were eager to administer justice. The men bound the heretic hand and foot, then wrapped him very tightly in a blanket. The crowd carried him to an abandoned stone building, shoved him into a dark corner under the floor, and left him to die. I realised with horror the man was me. Physical Resemblances In his book, Someone Else's Yesterday, Jeffrey J. Keane theorises that a person in this life may strongly resemble the person he or she was in a previous life. Keane, an assistant fire chief who lives in Westport, Connecticut, believes he is the reincarnation of John B. Gordon, a Confederate general of the Army of Northern Virginia, who died on January 9, 1904. As evidence, he offers photos of himself and the general. There is a striking resemblance. Beyond sharing physical similarities, Keane says that individuals in their past incarnations often think alike, look alike and even share facial scars. Their lives are so intertwined that they appear to be one. Another case of such resemblance is that of artist Peter Tickamp, who believes he may be the reincarnation of artist Paul Gauguin. Here, too, there is a physical resemblance, along with similarities between the two painters' work. Children's Spontaneous Recall and Special Knowledge Many small children who claim to recall past lives also express knowledge that could not have come from their own experiences. Such cases are documented in Carol Bowman's Children's Past Lives. Eighteen-month-old Elspeth had never spoken a complete sentence. But one evening as her mother was bathing her, Elspeth spoke up and gave her mother a shock. "'I'm going to take my vows,' she told her mother. Taken aback, she questioned the baby girl about her queer statement. "'I'm not Elsbeth now.' The child replied, I'm Rose, but I'm going to be Sister Teresa Gregory. Identical Handwriting Can proof of past lives be demonstrated by comparing the handwriting of a living person to that of the deceased person he or she claims to have been? Indian researcher Vikram Raj Singh Kohan believes so. Kohan's findings have been received favourably at the National Conference of Forensic Scientists at Bundelkhand University, Yansi. A six-year-old boy named Taranjit Singh from the village of Alunamiana, India, claimed since he was two that he had previously been a person named Satnam Singh. This other boy had lived in the village of Chukchela. Taranjit insisted and Taranjit even knew Satnam's father's name. Satnam had been killed while riding his bike home from school. An investigation verified the many details Taranjit knew about Satnam's life. But the clincher was that their handwriting, a trait experts know is as distinct as a fingerprint, was virtually identical. Matching birthmarks and birth defects. Dr. Ian Stevenson, head of the Department of Psychiatric Medicine at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, was one of the foremost researchers on the subject of reincarnation and past lives. In 1993, he wrote a paper entitled, Birth Marks and Birth Defects, Corresponding to Wounds on Deceased Persons, which described possible physical evidence for past lives. Among 895 cases of children who claim to remember a previous life or were thought by adults to have had a previous life, Stevenson writes, birthmarks and or birth defects attributed to the previous life were reported in 309 or 35% of the subjects. The birthmark or birth defect of the child was said to correspond to a wound usually fatal, or other mark on the deceased person whose life the child said it remembered. But could any of these cases be verified? In one fascinating case, an Indian boy claimed to remember the life of a man named Maharam, who was killed by a shotgun fired at close range. The boy had an array of birthmarks in the centre of his chest that looked like they might correspond to a shotgun blast. So the story was investigated. Indeed, there was a man named Maharam who was killed by a shotgun blast to the chest. An autopsy report recorded the man's chest wounds, which corresponded directly with the boy's birthmarks. In another case, a man from Thailand claimed that when he was a child, he had distinct memories of a past life as his own paternal uncle. This man had a large, scar-like birthmark on the back of his head. His uncle, it turned out, died from a severe knife wound to the same area. Dr. Stevenson documented a number of cases like these, many of which he could verify through medical records. the bandwidth for today's podcast is provided by talk TalkShoe at talkshoe.com. the show notes are held at the patreon.com forward slash paul rex website and remember you don't have to be a patron to access the show notes for this episode we have a facebook page facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy, P-A-U-L-R-E-X-Y. If you'd like to support the podcast and get access to three more podcasts each month, visit patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex and become a patron. Your support by becoming a patron helps to keep the podcast viable, as well as giving you access to a number of more podcasts each month. So if you're listening to this podcast, which is episode 188, and wondering where Podcast number 187, 186 and 185 are. They are available at patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex. And to all of you patrons who sent me messages of support and messages of concern with my recent family problems with my parents and the trouble I'm having with my eye and the laser treatment that I needed on it. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your kindness. It is really appreciated. And this is the first podcast I've managed to record since having the problems with my eye. I managed to get through it without too much wateriness in the eye, but it's not 100% there yet. Hopefully it improves. and from a website that has many strange, unusual and wonderful short tales the weirdhistorian.com and this one is called true ghost stories according to psychic investigator harrowed carrington and these are all written by our friend of the podcast mark hartsman is it possible to see ghosts if you asked psychic researcher harrowed carrington he'd say yes Carrington, who once investigated famed mediums Marjorie Crandon, alongside Houdini and others, and Giuseppe Pallandino, firmly believed we humans held the power to communicate with the afterlife. This, of course, extended to the belief in ghosts and haunted houses. Carrington collected numerous stories of such encounters in his 1915 book, True Ghost Stories. Carrington argued that we have a power called thought transference or telepathic hallucination, meaning one person could send a thought to another. This telepathic action between mind and mind is now pretty well known and operates more or less throughout life. By means of this, it is occasionally possible for one person to impress a scene or a picture upon the mind of another, so that the other shall see before him, as it were, In space, a vivid mental picture of the scene in the other's mind. True Ghost Stories recounts numerous tales from a variety of people, often including visions of relatives or friends that are later discovered to have occurred at the moment of their death. In addition, Carrington provides a host of brief stories from more famous people. Charles I of England was warned by an apparition but paying no heed was disastrously defeated at Naseby. Queen Elizabeth is said to have been warned of her death by the apparition of her own double. Napoleon at St Helena saw and conversed with the apparition of Josephine, who warned him of his approaching death. Lincoln had a certain premonitory dream which occurred three times in relation to important battles, and the fourth on the eve of his assassination. Mozart was visited by a mysterious person who ordered him to compose a requiem and came frequently to inquire after its progress, but disappeared on its completion, which occurred just in time for its performance at his own funeral. Ben Jonson was visited by the apparition of his eldest son with the mark of a bloody cross upon his forehead at the moment of his death by the plague. Thackeray wrote, It is all very well for you who have probably never seen spirit manifestations to talk as you do, but had you seen what I had witnessed, you would hold a different opinion. After a career of investigating psychic powers and writing many books on the subject, Carrington passed away in 1958 at the age of 78. No one has heard from him since. And if you're interested in what he looks like, there is an old photograph accompanying this article. Well, everyone, that concludes episode 188 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And remember, if you can become a patron of the podcast, your help would be truly and greatly appreciated. So until next time, this is Paul saying bye for now, everyone. Keep well, keep safe. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Bye now.